Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. As new generations increasingly have the knowledge and the social acceptance to explore their identities, the number of openly transgender people in our world, especially transgender youth, is rapidly rising. In fact, according to a recent study published by the New York Times, the population of transgender people under the age of 18 has more than doubled since 2017. Among these youth, surveys also found that a quarter of respondents identified as gender nonconforming, which means that increasing numbers of people are transitioning between binary genders, and many are stepping beyond the gender binary altogether. And yet, despite recent spikes in numbers, the transgender community is still comparatively small, making up roughly 0.6% of the global population. As a result, many cisgender people, meaning those of us whose gender aligns with the one we were assigned at birth, have little to no lived experience interacting with transgender people, What we're exposed to instead is whatever our media and our political and social leaders choose to tell us about transgender people, which results in a gap between actual trans people and a ton of cultural stereotypes about them. This gulf in our understanding not only endangers the trans population, it impoverishes all of us. It discourages different marginalized populations from working together, which makes it difficult to collaborate to dismantle the systems that oppress us. And if cisgender people don't have the chance to know transgender people, then we miss out on the opportunity to love our trans neighbors. Fortunately, some transgender people are stepping forward to help bridge this divide, sharing their personal stories, dispelling dangerous myths, and helping us envision a more egalitarian future for everyone. On today's episode, I'm happy that we'll be joined by two such voices. In our second half of the show, we'll hear an interview from gender-flexing author and organizer Dami Shoemaker, who will discuss their journey with gender and how patriarchy colonizes our minds. But first, we'll hear from Sam Rose Preminger as they share their story of discovering, then resisting, and then ultimately learning to love their transgender identity. And before we get started, I'd like to offer a quick note to listeners that both of today's segments contain mention of transphobic slurs, as well as gender-based violence and self-harm. So please make sure to take care of yourselves accordingly. To introduce our first guest, Sam Rose Preminger is a trans non-binary Jewish writer and publisher. They hold an MFA from Pacific University, serve as the editor-in-chief of Nailed Magazine, and are a contributing editor at Lightship Press and Write Bloody Publishing. Their poetry has appeared in numerous publications online and in print. Their debut collection of poems, Cosmological Horizons, is forthcoming from Kelsey Books in just a few weeks at the end of June. And I'm going to throw in here that Sam Rose Preminger is a hero at breaking down patriarchy. You've heard their name mentioned in the outro for the last many episodes They have helped with everything on the show, from writing coaching for many of our Season 2 contributors to filling our incredible new website with gorgeous educational content to scheduling, to editing, to masterminding many of Season 2's beautiful introductions. 
Sam has been an absolute lifesaver for me while I was writing my master's thesis this past year. And I am so very grateful and so proud to call them my friend. Sam lives in Portland, Oregon, where they report that they've acquired way too many houseplants. Welcome, Sam Rose Preminger. Hi, everyone. My name is Sam Rose Preminger. I am a transgender, non-binary person who uses the pronouns they and them. And today I'd like to talk with you all a bit about my experiences with gender. But before getting into that, I want to clarify a couple of things up front real quick. Number one, transgender people are all so much more than our genders. We are full people with lives as varied and unique and rich with experiences as any other. Most often, however, when a trans person is given the spotlight, it's with the expectation that we'll talk about our gender. That's fine, but as a reminder, we're people first and all of us have more to our personalities and interests than this one element of our identities. And number two... Transgender people do not owe you our stories, and we aren't obliged to educate you. Please don't pester the trans people in your life with invasive questions. You wouldn't believe how common this issue is and how uncomfortable it can make us just trying to get through our days. Okay, with that said though, I do want to step forward to share some of my thoughts about gender today specifically how my experiences of queer gender have been impacted by patriarchal systems. And, if it's alright, I'm going to start from the very beginning. In my childhood, I felt most at home when I was by the edge of a pond, holding a net in my hands to scoop up frogs, or a stick to overturn mossy logs and admire the mealy little microcosms underneath. The natural world, it seemed, was brimming with diversity, thriving on the interplay of unique creatures, each as marvelous as the next. And I recognized myself as an equal spirit within that intricate community of life. I knew that I belonged. And still to this day, when I imagine myself most being myself, what I see is my early childhood. A slender, spectacled kid taking shelter under the leaves of sugar maples and silver pine, dappled by the summer rains of central New York. But reality is that trips to the woods were an exception in my childhood. Vastly more numerous were trips to the shopping malls of suburbia, traffic-locked drives down dismal Long Island highways, and long strolls past the homogeny of plastic-paneled, ranch-style houses that had metastasized across my hometown somewhere in the early 50s. In case you haven't caught on, I didn't really like where I grew up. Now, I'll say that most of my family still lives in that area, and sometimes I can see the charm, beachside cafes and a good school system and such. But Suffice it to say that for a queer kid trying to understand themselves, the normativity of Long Island's culture could be suffocating. See, from a pretty young age, I'd started to stand out. I simply was not turning out to be the person that people expected me to be. And in this context, it's actually important to know that I was assigned male at birth. 
All that that means is that a doctor looked at my external anatomy when I was born, made a binary choice, and my parents agreed. For many years, that was that. I was a boy, a male, and would grow up to be a man. Or at least that was supposed to be that. But even in grade school, I was off script for what the world around me seemed to say a boy should be. I didn't care about sports or cars or action films. I wouldn't eat meat because the idea of animals being killed, chickens being turned into chicken nuggets, that made me cry. I just wasn't matching the masculine mold that had been laid out for me. I was sensitive, soft, and, let's be real, about as socially graceful as a giraffe on stilts. As a result, from an early age, I started to hear words like weirdo and loser loosely floated in my direction. At the best, I was praised for being unique, for marching to the beat of my own drum. And at the worst moments, I was told that there was something wrong with me, that I was a freak. And then, as I got older, faggot became the common slur for me. The environment I grew up in, the culture of patriarchy and homophobia I moved through, made it clear, in no uncertain terms at all, that I did not belong. And I agreed. They were right. I didn't belong. There's a quote from the poet and playwright T.S. Eliot that I remember reading sometime in my youth where he writes, I must tell you that I should really like to think there's something wrong with me. Because if there isn't, then there's something wrong with the world itself, and that's much more frightening. By the time I reached high school, I had thoroughly internalized this mindset. There was something wrong with me. Something off. The sense of belonging I'd once felt by the pond as a kid was severed, and I knew that the man-made world, the quote-unquote real world, it had no place for whatever I was. In those years, I was riddled with depression and anxiety, oftentimes unable to go out in public, missing school for weeks at a time, terrified of being seen. I didn't want anyone to look at my failure. How I was failing to become a man like I was told I should be, like I needed to be. <sighs> had I had the language for my identity that I have today, things might have been different. Had I had queer and trans role models, or seen people like me as anything but a villain, a victim, or punchline in the media, then maybe things would have been different. As my teenage years and high school played out, though, I'd end up trying to end my life twice before starting college. When it finally was time for me to leave home, I took my finger and traced a line across a map of the United States, deciding that that was where I would go as far away as I possibly could. Someplace no one would know me. Someplace I could disappear. I moved from Long Island, New York, to Portland, Oregon, at 17 years old, with no intention of ever going back. Wanting to be forgotten. I'm gonna let you know now, so you aren't too worried. Uh, moving to Portland would turn out to be a fantastic decision for me. My life was going to get better. But before that could happen, I was going to need to reckon with my identity. I was going to have to come out to myself and others, and that was not going to be an easy process. Rather, it's something I resisted for years, trying to be anything but transgender. In my late teens, I came out as bisexual. 
In my early 20s, I came out as queer, but I knew I hadn't put my finger on it yet. It was like I was trying to put band-aids on a wound that needed stitches. I had internalized so much transphobia that the possibility of me being transgender was completely intolerable, something to be bottled up at all costs. Before moving much further, I would like to pause and discuss where some of that internalized transphobia came from. And the answer is actually pretty simple. It came from entertainment. Growing up in a heteronormative community, I'd never had the opportunity to meet an openly transgender person. So my understanding of what trans lives looked like came almost entirely from the movies and TV I watched. And what that media showed me, it didn't look good. For example, the very first representation that I saw of an AMAB, meaning assigned male at birth, person wearing feminine clothing, was in the Robin Williams classic Mrs. Doubtfire. In the movie, Williams plays a divorced father who attempts to sneak back into the lives of his children and former wife by dressing up as a woman and pretending to be their nanny. Hilarity ensues. Audiences laugh as Williams struggles to fit into a dress. We laugh when he jokes that he looks like a serial killer. Several gags revolve around Williams revealing his deep, masculine voice while dressed in women's wear. And finally, the film reaches its climax when the cross-dresser is outed, being called a he-she after having been caught using a bathroom. It's funny, right? I want to be clear, I loved this movie as a child, and I do still think there's a case to be made for its campy treatment of gender-bending being at least somewhat progressive for the 90s. But the fact of the matter is that, for a young transgender child, this beloved family movie taught me that cross-dressers and other gender non-conforming people are tricksters. They're trying to lie to us and get away with something. And the very idea of me, an AMAB person, growing up and wearing a dress was not only laughable, it was blockbuster comedy. Let's fast forward a few years. In another instance, I'm invited to a childhood sleepover, where my friends and I watch another comedy classic you might know, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. This time, the movie keeps its transgender character, who, by the way, has stolen a police officer's identity in order to kidnap and kill people, a secret until the big finale, when the film's hero comedically tears this trans woman's clothes off, exposing her genitals, and then proceeds to violently retch, struggling to hold back vomit at his discovery. This was not a one-line joke in a minor studio release. This was the climactic plot point of a film that held top spot at the box office for weeks. And, as a child at that sleepover, I watched as this trans character was treated with utter disgust and contempt while laughing along with my friends. Transgender people were untrustworthy and their bodies repulsive. Again, it was funny. I could go on and on with more examples of transphobic media from my youth. Seriously, it was omnipresent. Friends, Silence of the Lambs, Ally McBeal, Sex in the City, South Park, Dude Wears My Car, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. The list goes on and on and on. Any time a transgender person was shown or referenced on screen, they were a punchline or a monster, oftentimes both. 
and I watched all of that, deeply internalizing these hateful stereotypes. Here I want to pause and just offer a quick note about the importance of representing queer characters in media, especially in children's media. I want to make this as clear as possible. The push for representation is not about encouraging kids to be gay or trans. After all, I grew up constantly watching heterosexual cisgender characters kiss and date, and that didn't make me straight. This isn't about changing people. Representation is about making sure all of us, especially kids, can see characters who look and act like them on a screen. It's about making sure queer or questioning children can envision futures for themselves. It's about making sure they know, like every other child, that they can find love in this world and are worthy of loving themselves. I wish I could say things have gotten much better since the 90s and early aughts, but... Reality is that our media representation of transgender people is still incredibly lacking. We're seldom seen, and when we are represented, it's typically with dangerous inaccuracy. In a survey of 102 television episodes featuring transgender characters, GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, found that 54% of the episodes contain negative representations of trans people, while another 35% were marked as problematic. Only 12% of the episodes surveyed were found to represent transgender characters in a fair and accurate manner. That's about 12 episodes out of 102. Beyond this, the GLAD survey also found that transgender characters were cast in a victim role at least 40% of the time, and cast as killers or villains at least 21% of the time. That means 61% of the time trans characters appeared on the screen, we were shown as the victims or villains of these storylines. And, unsurprisingly, the survey also found that 61% of the cataloged episodes included transphobic slurs and dialogue. Some of the negative representations included, quote, CSI, which not only featured a transgender serial killer who murdered his own mother, but scenes in which transgender murder victims were openly mocked by the show's lead characters while examining their dead bodies and crime scenes. The Cleveland Show, in which a man vomits on screen for a lengthy period of time after discovering he had slept with a transgender character. The episode also contains anti-trans language and defamatory characterizations. And Nip Tuck, which featured a storyline about a transgender woman who regretted her transition, a transgender sex worker being beaten, and an entire season about a trans woman depicted as a baby-stealing sexual predator who sleeps with her own son. End quote. <sighs> What this survey tells us is that transgender people are still actively misrepresented in media. Our lives are co-opted and sensationalized in order to sell stories and earn higher ratings. But those ratings come at a real cost for real people. When stereotypes run rampant, when trans people are reduced to victims, villains, and jokes, these ideas become reinforced in viewers. And viewers often have little other knowledge of what it means to be transgender. 
worse still, these ideas become reinforced in the minds of trans youth, warping their self-perception and undercutting their self-esteem, just like they did for me. Finally, these stereotypes can be, and have been, wielded by politicians to further persecute and restrict the freedoms of the transgender citizens they're meant to represent. I'll talk more about transphobia in our politics later, but for now suffice it to say that, when we consider the aggressive heteronormativity of our culture, the active misrepresentation of transgender and other queer people in media, and the near-constant barrage of hatred from elected officials, I really think it's something miraculous when any person manages to come out of the closet at all. It is so frighteningly easy for me to imagine a world in which I never made it that far. By the time I was in my early 20s, I believed, I knew, that there could be nothing worse than being transgender. The culture I'd been steeped in, been breathing like oxygen, had completely convinced me that a trans person's life was a waking nightmare. They were destined to be reviled, abused, outcast, or worse. I knew a trans person's life would only be one of two things. A comedy, because nothing is more worthy of derision and mockery than someone pretending to be a different sex. Or it could be a tragedy, because nothing is more revolting and untrustworthy, more deserving of violence than a trans person's body. I didn't want that to be me. That couldn't be me. I was terrified and so consumed with self-loathing, I couldn't even imagine that someday I would love myself. Instead, in my early 20s, I was disgusted by the thoughts that would sometimes well up in me, for the truths I was constantly trying to tell myself. It didn't even make sense. I knew I wasn't a woman, but more and more I was realizing that I wasn't a man. What did that make me? I didn't know the word non-binary back then. The words that patriarchy had taught me were freak, tranny, and worse. I shoved those thoughts, that possibility, those words as deep down as I could. I tried to hide from myself with statements like, I've just got to play the hand I've been dealt. And gender's really not a big deal to me. I did everything I could to run away from the dawning discovery. I tried to drown the truth in alcohol. At this point in my life, drinking and thoughts of suicide were my near constant companions. In the mornings, I would wake up hungover, my memory hazy, and find letters I'd drunkenly written to myself from the night before, begging myself to confront who I really am, to do anything at all. I'll quote from one of those letters to myself now. Sam, this has to stop. It didn't always hurt this much. I know it hurts now. You need to be who you are. Remember the pond, the frogs, and deep forest moss. Remember music. Remember the sounds of the summer rain. I promise you, you don't want to die. Try to remember the rain. (sighs) Okay. 
So I've talked a lot already about the ways our culture propagates distrust, hatred, and disgust as appropriate responses to transgender people. That was a large part of my struggle. But another part of my struggle was about knowledge, about history. At this point in my life, I knew I wasn't a man or a woman, but I didn't know there were other possibilities. I was defining myself by what I wasn't and had no clear grasp on who I was. But what else was I supposed to be doing when I never heard what the word non-binary even meant? That information had been kept from me. And it occurs to me that a few folks listening might have not been exposed to this knowledge either. So I'm going to share, real quick, some history of non-binary, or NB, people. Let's get a definition going first. Quoting from the National Center for Transgender Equality, quote, Most people, including most transgender people, are either men or women. But some people don't neatly fit into these categories. For example, some people have a gender that blends elements of being a man or a woman, while other people, like myself, have a gender that is different than either male or female. Some people don't identify with any gender. Some people's gender changes over time. People whose gender is not male or female use many different terms to describe themselves, with non-binary being one of the most common. Other terms include genderqueer, agender, bigender, and more. None of these terms mean exactly the same thing, but all speak to an experience of gender that is not simply male or female. End quote. Non-binary identities are numerous, and non-binary experiences are each as varied and unique as the experiences of any other gender. There is just so much space beyond the gender binary. Now that we know who we're talking about, though, the other important thing to know, and that I didn't know until recently, is that non-binary people have always existed. We've been here as far back as gender's invention, and historical records of non-binary people can be found all across the world. To quote the transgender archaeologist Gabby Anomi Hartman, quote, I often find myself overwhelmed with deep feelings of nostalgia when I learn about ancient times. Human beings have lived with fluid notions of masculinity and femininity in various cultures throughout most of human history, without their existences being demonized and violated, end quote. Examples of these non-binary identities, which have existed throughout history and into the present day, include the Hijra in India, Mushe in Mexico, the Mahu in Polynesia, and numerous two-spirit identities across North America. Now, you might be wondering, if non-binary and third-gender identities have existed for so long and in so many places, why the heck hadn't I heard of them before? It's a great question, and one that's deserving of an answer. Some of our lack of awareness can be chalked up to cisgender bias in academia. For instance, according to Dr. Pamela Geller, a scholar of bioarchaeology who specializes in the analysis of ancient human remains, quote, Despite the fact that archaeologists regularly come upon evidence that some people did not fit sex and gender binaries, those researchers still have a tendency to diminish their relevance, 
relegating them to, quote, anomalies or, quote, ambiguous cases, end quote. Beyond these instances of academic bias, however, there's also good reason that we're made to feel as if all of this were new, as if we're inventing it, as if it were all made up. And the reason for that, were I to sum it up in one word, is this. Patriarchy. You may be thinking, hold on, isn't patriarchy about the oppression of women? Why would patriarchal structures care about trans people? Well, let's look at that for a moment. Patriarchy, at its very core, is built atop the belief in a gender binary. In fact, I would argue that the survival of patriarchy depends upon gender essentialism and binary gender in order to do the following. A. Determine and enforce a division of labor, often one where the brunt of undervalued and exhausting work falls on the shoulders of women. B. Regulate the behaviors, appearance, and value allotted to each gender. And C. Claim that these social categories are natural and inviolable. To put it another way, patriarchy relies on the rigid division of all people into two categories in order to situate one category, men, above the other, women. This means that the very existence of transgender and other gender nonconforming people is a challenge to the power structure, and we are punished for it. Our political leaders, faith leaders, and others paint us as predators and enemies to women, encouraging oppressed populations to fight amongst ourselves. Our nation's laws target trans people, especially trans youth, with draconian restrictions on their rights to access things like life-saving health care, safe spaces, or even their access to the bathroom. Our media represents trans people as deceptive deviants, villains, victims, or as the punchlines to hateful jokes. In short, the systems of patriarchy have historically, and are in this very moment working to silence, and if possible, erase the existence of transgender people. Throughout our history, the gender binary has been treated as immutable, codified in law, enshrined in religion, and aggressively enforced by a male-dominated culture. And yes, most often, this binary is used as a weapon against women, restricting their freedoms and social roles in favor of men's dominance. But the transgender population is enduring constant collateral damage from these patriarchal norms. I'll say that again. Regardless of your personal beliefs on gender, the fact is that the gender binary has historically been, and is still today, used as a tool for enforcing patriarchal norms. It is used as a weapon against women, and its impact greatly injures trans people as well. With this in mind, it's no wonder that transgressions against the binary system have been almost entirely erased from our cultural memory. Knowledge of transgender people has been carefully concealed and eradicated by patriarchy for centuries. It's the reason that the Nazis burned over 20,000 books on sexuality and gender during World War II the reason that British colonizers attempted to eradicate the gender non-conforming Hijra population in occupied India. And it's the reason that the Trump administration erased all mention of trans people from the White House's website, 
and then attempted to redefine the word gender to specify a person's assigned sex. Trans erasure, just like the erasures of women and of people of color, is not accidental. It is a tactic used to protect patriarchal institutions. By creating a cultural narrative where transgender people have no past, the patriarchy makes their argument that we should have no present become more palatable. They convince trans people that we should be grateful for being permitted to exist in their world at all. And they convince all of us that the gender binary is absolute, unchangeable, and neatly and naturally divides society into powerful men and the women they preside over. Fortunately, as increasing numbers of people come forward to challenge this binary, to share their stories and try to correct some of the damage our media and other institutions have wrought, that patriarchal narrative of two stringent genders is beginning to crumble. We have a long, long way to go. There is so much work ahead of us. But at least it's possible to see some light at the end of the tunnel now. To imagine futures where these cruel systems are little more than embarrassing relics of our past. And I'm very happy to say that, with the support of friends, family, and partners, things did get better for me. In my mid-twenties, I came out of the closet and into my identity as a transgender person. And anyone who knows me will tell you that I am happier today than I have ever been before. Since coming out, life has only gotten better. I'm finding peace with myself, acceptance of myself. I've been finally falling in love with myself. So many of the internal struggles I spent my younger years wrestling with have washed away and I'm very happy to be in the process of healing from the injuries that went deeper. And yet, now living as an openly non-binary person, while many internal struggles have resolved, I'm suddenly faced with all manner of external challenges. However high I hold my head up, and however eagerly I try to engage with our world, it is often not a kind place for transgender people. It takes practice and thought and care for trans people to move through this world that patriarchy has created. To quote non-binary activist and author Alok Vaidmenon, quote, The days I feel most beautiful are the days that I am most afraid. End quote. As transgender people, we have to consider what streets we can walk down, what clothes it's safe to wear, what bathroom we won't be a target in. And if we make a misstep, there can be very, very real consequences. Sometimes those consequences occur regardless. Every transgender person I know has been threatened with violence and most have experienced it. Even in my progressive city, multiple transgender women of color have been murdered without consequence. Walking down the street, it is almost a guarantee that I will attract stares, if not harassment, from people I pass by. There is still the issue of trans misrepresentation any time I turn on my TV, and if I dare look at politics, I'm buffeted by a veritable banquet of hate. To put it simply, there are far too many anti-queer and anti-transgender bills, either active or under consideration across our country. 
238 anti-LGBTQIA plus bills were filed in less than three months in this year, 2022. This is the highest incidence of anti-LGBTQIA plus legislation being proposed to date, though the number seems to climb year by year. The majority of these bills target trans people explicitly. Over 23 were aimed at trans children. There will be an updated list of active and recently defeated anti-queer legislation included in the show notes for this episode, but some highlights include a recently proposed bill in Ohio, which, if it becomes law, will force girls and young women to submit to invasive gender verification tests if they want to stay on their high school sports team. Beyond this, in the last six months alone, Idaho, Arizona, and Louisiana have all considered bills forbidding doctors from providing gender-affirming, and I'll add often life-saving, care to transgender youth. Though notably, all three of these bills make exceptions to allow involuntary surgery on intersex babies so that they can be sorted into the binary as well. While many of these bills won't become laws, a few of them will. And the very fact that we so actively debate transgender rights in the halls of our government carries a serious toll. Mental health experts draw a direct line between statements made by politicians and individual well-being. According to Dr. Adam Jowett, the chair of the British Psychological Society's Sexuality Section, quote, There is strong evidence that minorities experience greater levels of stress when their rights are being debated, end quote. I can attest to the effects of this stress myself. As many other marginalized people know, it is exhausting to watch, after countless centuries of our ancestors struggling for liberation, as small, homogenous panels of people who look nothing like us debate whether or not we should be allowed to have rights. Before wrapping up, there's one last story I'd like to share with you. I'm going to share a story from just a few months ago, actually. So, this was back in autumn of last year. Infection rates in my area were low, so my partner and I decided to go out to our first concert together since COVID had begun. We both love dancing and live music and were beyond excited to be seeing one of our favorite bands. I even had a new outfit picked out just for the occasion. An orange turtleneck, my grandmother's faux gold necklace, and a poofy black skirt that was going to be perfect for spinning around in. We got to the venue early, grabbed some drinks from the bar, and had just started scooching our way towards the stage when it hit me. A sudden, small dread. I had to pee. Now, some listeners might be wondering, what's the big deal? You had to pee. Go use the bathroom. Well, here's the big deal. A 2013 survey from UCLA's Williams Institute found that nearly 70% of trans people had experienced negative interactions in public facilities, from dirty looks to snide comments to physical violence. Honestly, based on my own experience, I'm surprised that percentage isn't higher. Harassment and assault in public bathrooms are a constant risk for trans people. 
this is the reason that transgender people like myself often run into problems with dehydration and urinary tract issues. We are literally afraid to use the bathroom. Although, from the popular cultural narrative around trans people and bathrooms, you might think otherwise. To summarize that narrative simply, all those hateful stereotypes we discussed earlier, remember the ones where transgender people are presented as liars and villains? Well, all that here gets blended with politics in some truly malicious, and I'll add misogynistic ways. The popular story is this. Men are dressing up as women in order to gain access to women's restrooms and assault them. This is rhetoric we've heard from political leaders as recently as this past March, when North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory signed a law which effectively made it illegal for trans people to use the bathroom, with conservative critics arguing that to do anything otherwise would give, quote, sexual predators a free pass to prey on women and children. Despite the popularity of this story, though, as of the time of me recording this, there has never been a single confirmed case of a trans person assaulting anyone in a public restroom. I want to emphasize that. There has never been a single verifiable instance of a trans person attacking someone else in a public restroom. To be honest, I didn't know that before doing the research for this podcast. I'm embarrassed to admit I had heard the myth of transgender predators so many times that I thought it must, to some extent, be true. But it isn't true. In fact, it's an almost identical twin to fallacious arguments that were once used to advocate for things like racial segregation. It's the same old claim that men need to defend their women from dangerous outsiders. It's an argument grounded on fear-mongering, on prejudice, and on the treatment of women as a helpless social resource needing to be governed for their own protection. And, alarmingly, it's an argument that still holds a great deal of power, making bathroom trips a constant nuisance for many transgender people. I'll break it down for you. Ordinarily, using a public bathroom looks something like this for me. Step one. Wait outside until I don't see anybody go in or out for a few minutes. Step two. Hurriedly step inside, keeping my head down to avoid anyone seeing my face, and rush into a stall. Step three. If anyone else is in the bathroom already, or happens to enter while I'm in there, Wait in that stall for them to leave. Step four. When I'm certain the room is empty, scurry to the sink, scrub my hands as quickly as I possibly can, and, of course, carry some disinfectant just in case I don't get that opportunity. After several years of being openly transgender, I have this routine down to an art. But... On the autumn night in question, I wasn't at a quiet cafe or public park... I was in a busy concert venue, and both restrooms were crowded with people. Either way I chose, I'd have to be seen. There was no way to hide. I didn't want to have to make this decision, men's room or women's room, but my body wasn't giving me a choice. So back in that moment, I queue up for the women's room. My thinking being this. One, it's the longer line, 
and thus the more respectful one to wade in, and two, my outfit happens to look more like the outfits in this line than it does the other. As soon as I step into place among the women, I started questioning myself, though. A lady in gold eyeshadow in front of me shuffles forward, and I try to convince myself she's just social distancing. She's being safe. It's not about me. If anything, she's being considerate, but... No, too late. The anxiety inside me is already starting to bloom. Are people looking at me? Is it in my head? Maybe they just like my necklace. My hat? Another woman queues up behind me, eyeing me up and down, coldly, before clearing her throat. Confusion? Disdain? A man walks past, pausing to glance at me in the women's line. He chuckles. The woman behind me clears her throat again, louder. But when I look to her, she won't meet my eyes. Had I chosen wrong? Was I just making the line even longer for her? For the real women? This was clearly another place I did not belong. I slipped out of that line with my head kept down, hurrying over to a quiet corner where I could lower my mask for a moment and steady my breathing. I assure myself, everything's okay. But the show is starting soon. Okay, I say to myself. We're doing this. Men's room it is. I readjust my mask and fix a fold in my skirt. Here we go. Walking through the threshold to the men's room, I'm buffeted by a buffet of terrifying facts and distressing memories that rush to mind. Detailed accounts of assault. Videos of trans people being beaten and dragged out of bathrooms. Portland's a progressive city, I remind myself. I know I probably won't be killed in a public space, but hate speech, despising stares, or even a light beating are still all on the menu as far as my amygdala is concerned. I try to hurry for a stall, but there's a line of men waiting. I take a spot alongside them, occupying as little space as I can, staring at my shoes like they're the most awe-inspiring sight on earth. It doesn't matter. Within a moment, a man turns to me and spells it out as plain as day. You don't belong here, he says to me. And I agree. I had tried so hard to come up with a solution to this bathroom issue like it were some sort of binary puzzle. I just wanted to be safe and respectful of the people around me, and for heaven's sake, I just wanted to pee. But I couldn't manage to do that without drawing the stranger's ire. I was in the wrong room, because there was no right room. This was just another system that had no place for me. But here's some good news. We can change this system and others like it. When I was a child, still catching frogs by the side of that pond, I believed I was part of the world, as natural, essential, and valuable as a leaf on a tree or a fish in a stream. In the course of my life, the forces of patriarchy did their absolute best to strip that belief away from me, to tell me I was abnormal, unnatural, unwanted, and without worth. I am still bombarded by these messages nearly any time I step outside or look at my phone. But at least for today, I can let those hateful slings ricochet off my self-love. Today I understand that patriarchy is a social construct not the all-encompassing reality it pretends to be. Who cares if its oppressive systems have no place for me? Today I know I am as much a part of this world as the flowers and the sun, 
as all of you listening and any other human to walk the earth. And all of us deserve a world where we can blossom and shine. I believe we can build that world together. But it starts with breaking down our barriers, our binaries, and our mistakes. Thank you. We're so grateful to Sam Rose Preminger for sharing that piece. Up next, we'll be hearing Sam's voice again, but this time they're stepping in to interview a transgender author, organizer, and fan of the podcast, Domi Shoemaker, discussing Domi's own relationship to gender, as well as colonialism, patriarchy, and what it means to be either, or, both, and neither, while still always being enough. Domi J. Shoemaker is an Idaho-born gender flexor who founded the quarterly reading series Burnt Tongue after starting out in Tom Spanbauer's Dangerous Writers Workshop. They are the Corporeal Writing Seasonal Workshop co-facilitator and is published at Pank, Nailed Magazine, Unshod Quills, and many other publications. Welcome, Domi Shoemaker. I'm looking very much forward to this conversation. Same. Uh, so full disclosure for our listeners, uh, the two of us spoke a little bit before this recording session to see what Dami might want to share with everyone. And it became apparent that there was one topic that was circling in their mind, which was colonialism or decolonialism to be more specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we get too far into the nitty gritty of that, Would you be able to explain for our listeners just briefly what colonialism is and maybe talk a bit about how it intersects with patriarchy? Yeah. um, Well, you know, colonialism in a broad sense is basically one group of something going into another group of something and taking it over as if it were theirs and not always destroying customs, habits, lifestyles, ways of being, but very much usually about that. And the way that I have, on a micro level, broken this question down for myself is sort of about the cross-section of patriarchy and colonialism, as in a way that I understand how my brain thinks and how to try to get around, beyond, or through that. And the reason that came up for me is because I was uh, speaking, actually speaking with my therapist in this session, and... um, I talked about all these things that I was negative things I was saying about myself in my head and that it's lifelong. It's been a lifelong thing of uh, either not being good enough or smart enough or enough of this or enough of that. And, and, and it's still, still so, so relevant in my everyday experience that I, in my, the way that I've been thinking about it is that the way I've grown up, I was born in 1964. So I've been through a lot of years uh, and I grew up in a small town in Idaho. So that was also very relevant to this whole conversation in that the patriarchy has colonized my mind <laughs> and I'm not the only one, but I, I, I want to speak for myself because I mean, you can't live in this world without the patriarchy in some way colonizing your mind. Right. In, I can't say in the whole world, but in, in Portland, <laughs> in the United States, um, in Western civilization, the patriarchy is is all of who we are. I mean, I know that there are, are um, a number of cultures who are 
matrilineal, but not huge points of civilization since way back. And that's always been refuted as well. So anyway, but <laughs> my point is, it's really hard to live in a, in, in a world sometimes um, with all of these expectations about how to be bottom line. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, was that a little too much? <laughs> no, that was wonderful. But okay, I know that's some heavy, complex stuff we're getting into. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, if you don't mind, then, I'm actually going to backtrack us just a little bit uh, to go back to you were mentioning your childhood. Yes. And I want to get into that because you've mentioned that it informed a bit of how you view yourself and function within patriarchy and colonialism today. Mm-hmm. And also because we spoke already and I know there's some cool stuff back there. <laughs> Uh, but you mentioned you were born and grew up in Idaho, right? Yes, I did. Yep. Okay. Would you be willing to tell us just a little bit about what that was like? Yeah. Um, I grew up in a small town in northern Idaho. I was born in 1964. I grew up um, right around the, with all of the, the, the energy and noise around the Vietnam War and still coming off of the end of the 1950s with all of the sort of idealistic, you know, mom and dad and 2.5 children and a puppy and a fence and the, you know, and all that stuff. And, and my family started out that way until I was about three and my parents got divorced, but, and, and they very much tried to fit into that role of a mom and a dad and two boys and one girl. And, you know, and I was that one girl, I don't identify like that at all now, but it was always, this is what you're supposed to be. And this is how it's supposed to be. And this is who you're supposed to be. But that was pretty much severed when I was three and my dad was gone. And we had moved to Southern Idaho for a little while and came back to Northern Idaho. And I just remember not feeling like, like I never felt like, first of all, I never felt like what people expected girl to be. We were also very poor. It took a while for my mom to get a job, but she did get a job, but still raising three children on one job, a secretary type job is not easy. So, you know, I didn't have a lot of supervision growing up either. And we moved around a lot. And sometimes we didn't have a place to live. So there was a lot of bouncing around and a lot of trying to figure it out for myself, how to be, where to fit, who am I? And sometimes that feels very selfish to even think that way. But I, I think about these things as a way to see the rest of the world. And I, I see my role in the world. And I, I always have as being more of a a helper type person or a protector and a helper. And, and some of that came about uh, out of needing to protect myself because I was very much, I looked like a little boy. I was a tomboy and I, I very much, I got a lot of, I've got a lot of uh, flack for that, you know, for not being feminine enough. And, and I wasn't able to be masculine enough to actually, whatever that means. I, I started breaking norms pretty young, like playing boys baseball. Uh, I made the boys baseball league. I was like one of the first girls in my state to play boys baseball. And it was wet with hostility from some people and it was met with support from other people. I was fortunate. My mom was real supportive of that. Mostly I was looked like as a a kind of a freak and an anomaly and a weirdo, (laughs) but, but I, but I played and I had a good time and, it sort of set the track for me to continue doing things that felt true to me. Uh, I got enough support around that to be able to do that. I think that was one of the 
the early factors that helped me do that. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like both you and your mom were doing amazing things. I mean, yeah. pushing boundaries and raising three kids while working. Yeah. Oh my God. Working a full-time job, three kids. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And not always having a place to live. Yeah. It was, it was rough. It was rough. You mentioned that you were receiving all of these messages, the sense of norms and of not being enough, especially around like gender roles and expectations. Where was that messaging coming from for you? Yeah. Um, yeah, around gender roles and expectations, I always wanted to be outside playing, playing football, digging in the dirt. I remember one specifically in third grade, all my friends were out playing horse, horsey. And that would mean that one, one, it was always girls. One girl was, you know, running around the field and making horse noses, noises. And another girl was following her, trying to catch her and, you know, to catch her and tame the horse, right? And the boys would always come around and like um, chase the girls and they would giggle and punt. And I ended up being the, the protector of the girls. I was like the cowboy who protected the girls from the marauding boys all the time. So I, I was always somewhere in between girls and boys doing something. But I didn't make enemies from that necessarily. But I definitely, definitely opened up a lot of questions for other people because people would always ask me, if are you a boy or a girl? Like constantly. Do you a boy or a girl? And like, I'm like, I... I, sometimes I would answer boy and sometimes I would answer girl. And sometimes I would chase boys and punch them for asking me. <laughs> <laughs> so this is going a little off of the things we discussed beforehand then, but since it's come up twice now, can I ask for our listeners how you see yourself today? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Today I see myself as a non-binary person. I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that the ability to categorize myself that way. Now, when I was growing up, that was, that's not even something that we were told was, I didn't even know it existed. I didn't even know it was okay to be either or, or both or neither, <laughs> you know, and that's how I see myself now, either or both and neither. Sometimes I do see myself as neither. Sometimes I see myself as both. Sometimes I see myself, you know, as it, it can go back and forth very quickly. But mostly I see myself as sort of a non-gendered human being who gets to be okay with a, an X on their gender marker. Uh, I got my first gender, my first X on my gender marker like just a couple months ago when I replaced my my ID. And it just, and I could, if you want to know, I could tell you a little bit about how that happened. Yeah, you know? I'd be fascinated. And congratulations on getting the X. <laughs> yeah, I was excited about it. it I, for a little while, I didn't want to because I'm like, with the, the former administration, I was really, really afraid of what that could possibly mean. And it still could possibly mean in the future, but gotta be me, <laughs> you know? And I, and it, that F did not work for me. So the thing that helped me really, really, really embrace my gender was not too long after I really, really embraced a part of my sexuality that was in my sexual identity, which is kink from the kink community. I, um, in the leather community, I, my first relationship in the leather community, my person that I was involved with at the time started introducing me as he to all of her people and uh, designated me a boy. It just fit because I knew in that world, boy as in B-O-I meant someone with an AFAB body, assigned female at birth body, but with 
a gender des designation that was a lot less definite. So I could have my body still and be who I am still, but be called a boy, which just fit. It fit my clothing. It fit my style. It fit my sense of self. And so I started playing around with the clothing that I wanted to wear. And I, I now have a style that's, that started, that was back in 1998 and 99 that I went down that path. And I was already what, 35, 40. Like, but the cool thing was that when I started being called boy um, or with masculine identifiers, it was like, oh, does that make sense? I didn't want to always be one or the other necessarily, but it really opened my 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 mind up to it. And uh, um, and then a few years later, non-binary stuff started coming into the picture, and I knew that that was even better. And the first the first instance of the more non-binary stuff, honestly, was um, from a friend of mine who was part of the Naraya group. It's and it's an honored tradition with a lot of non-binary folks, two-spirit folks that go to the Naraya dances. And my the person I was dating at the time was involved in, in that. And we talked a lot in, about two-spirit. And then I ended up writing a paper on it for school. <laughs> like, and, and, and I fully admit that it, that's not my culture and it's not my, I mean, it's not my culture. And so I, I don't want to take anything away from, from that at all just in saying that to take away the shame of feeling like that my, my gender didn't fit anywhere when for cult in their cultures that it's always been part of their cultures, you know, just not ours. So I, I felt really relieved about that. And I was able to like translate. And then I started, I, I started looking for it places and other people who accepted me or, or, even championed the non-binary world, the non-binary identification, non-binary embodiment. And I know right now that trans, of course, especially trans women of color and, and trans folks everywhere are getting a lot more flack and trouble than we used to. Thank you for sharing all that. And I am so grateful yeah. that you found the language that helps you know who you are and feel powerful in that. And <laughs> Yay, thank you. It's really interesting to me because I treasure so much the people coming up in the world because it's the people coming up in the world who I'm, I'm almost 58 years old. So I treasure the, just the younger people coming up in the world who are like so unapologetic about who they are. It, it makes me almost cry, you know, like, like my partner's um, kiddo is a non-binary kid, a non-binary queer kid who's like, and I just like, they're only 14 years old. And they're like, they're, I just want to cry because like, I'm just so happy that there are people in the, like, that there's a place for people in the world. They don't have, there's lots of other things to worry about for them and for younger folks who are non-binary coming out in the world. But that is one struggle that's getting some attention and getting some traction and some support that it didn't get before. And it just makes me so happy. It's amazing yeah. to see. Isn't it? It really yeah. is. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. So we've spoken a little bit before about uh, mental health struggles that you faced as you were growing up, uh, specifically in your thirties, mm -hmm. you said it's, okay to get as into this or not into this as you'd like to, but if you'd be willing to share a bit about 
what you were experiencing and the ways that patriarchy was impacting you. I'd love to hear. Yeah, it's hard to talk about sometimes, but I was, when I first came out, when I was 19, I thought, oh goodness, I, yay, I came out. So the, the world's going to change. It's going to be, it's going to be different. And I'm going to be seen as this, that's what was wrong with me is what I, you know, that's, that was my, what my head, that's what was wrong with me. I was gay, you know? So I came out in the world and I thought it was going to be okay. But the world that I came into was a world of stereotypes and a lot of patriarchy in the community that I was in. There were butch and femme and you had to be one or the other and nobody could be out and gay. And like we had these small communities of people in these secret parties because in a place like Lewiston, you can't like just go meet at a bar or something like that or, or just go and have coffee someplace because people get hurt for things like that. And they did. I actually had, anyway, a friend who was killed, but for being gay, basically. <laughs> but I, I don't want to bring all that into it, but it's it's true. That's my, it, it, it was not okay to be gay. It was not okay to be different. And even in the gay world, it, it had to be, you know, masculine, feminine together. Or, I mean, there were people who weren't masculine and feminine looking, but had masculine and feminine roles. So basically what happened was when that, when, I mean, this, I, it's so hard to talk about sometimes because I don't like, we're talking about me, but, I, but it's not about me. It's about growing up in a culture where there's no room for you to be anything, but they want what they want you to be, you know? And, and I, and I really, really must say the people around me, my friends were all like, Oh, that's just Dami. That's just Dami. But it was so dis it was so dismissive usually that everybody just wanted to push it away. Oh, until I went to the hospital and I actually I I ended up going to the hospital for thirty days and was diagnosed with depression and PTSD. And so I do have some pretty significant mental health stuff going on. Um, but over the years, I've learned how to deal with it and learn how to get the support I need when I need it. And the thing that's helped me more than anything the past 10 years is writing and the writing community. And I just dove right into it when I, when I found this group of people basically here in Portland. Ooh, thank you for sharing. I know that's a lot. That. <laughs> I know that today you're one of the key contributors to corporeal writing, which is yeah, just yeah. an absolute pillar of the Portland writing community. They're fantastic. Uh, would you be willing to, Tell listeners a little bit about what corporeal writing is and what you do there. Sure. Corporeal writing is an idea and the practice of recognizing that the body has and holds our stories, whether we um, can articulate them or not through words or through whatever kind of art. If we can find a way to tap into what our body has to tell us, we can get things that are locked in there that we might not even know about. Uh, so my role there, um, we actually have a physical space downtown, as you know, you've been there, um, downtown Portland, and I'm the manager of that space. But my initial role originally was um, just helping Lydia get it started. So Lydia Yuknovich is the founder and creator and 
I'm not necessarily the co-founder, but I helped start it. <laughs> like it, we call it different things at different times, and she likes to give me credit and you know and uh, and I did help her start it because uh, I 100% believed in what she was doing, and we tried to build something that would really really help people who might not necessarily fit into other writing structures or other writing practices. The, the true, the belief is that every, everyone deserves to have a voice. And what I see my job as is I want to help you mine your words. I want to help you find your words. I'm not here to tell your story. I'm not here to tell you how to tell your story or even how a story should look. And that's, this is how I think um, corporeal writing fits into bringing down the patriarchy in that we don't talk about bringing down the patriarchy. It's not like we're having conversations all the time about bringing down the patriarchy, but our actions in encouraging people to really find the way that they want to create their stories and how they want to put them out in the world. It doesn't have to follow any kind of arc. It doesn't have to follow a linear storyline. It doesn't have to follow any theories necessarily, but to give them as much information and as many resources and encourage folks to access what their body stories are and what the bodies are trying to tell them. And it's just beautiful to see what comes out of people. It almost sounds like you're back in that protector role again. Help me make sure that all these authors get to write what they need to write. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. One of my major roles there is a holder of space. You've got to be able to hold the space for people in order for them to feel comfortable and safe enough to go to the deeper places to get to the work they really want to write. I try to do it safely in a way like, you know, encourage folks to have people they can talk to and stuff like that. And, but yes, the protector role is definitely very much part of my job always. And you've already spoken a bit about how patriarchy puts restrictions on people in terms of their ability to tell their own story. Is there more that you'd like to say on that? And also, how does colonialism get into the mix with this? Yeah, I want to say one of the ways that colonialism gets in is because we are taught that there's a way to write a story. We are told that the market wants to hear certain stories and certain stories get elevated above other stories. It is no surprise that the canon is filled with old white dudes and it's okay, but there are other voices that are really, really important to be heard, you know? And I, I want to, how do I say this? It's okay to write books in snippets. It's okay to write books in what you can come up with your own forms, right? The reason, I think the reason those things are happening is because people have pushed it and said, no, I'm not going to do it the way you want me to anymore. I'm going to do it like this. And there are people from other cultures who like, this is we, the way we tell stories in the culture that I grew up in. And like in my own personal culture, like in my family culture, the way we tell, there's a lot of joking, there's a lot of ribbing, there's a lot of short anecdotal things that happen. And my, it comes out in my writing that way. And I've learned how to write another way. I've learned how to write a linear story. I know how to have rising action and the climax and the denouement and all that. I know all that stuff. But do I want to write that way? Not always. <laughs> So you were saying that yes. it's also important that we start listening to other voices, which I completely agree with in literature and, frankly, every other aspect of our culture. But what would you say to folks who are worried about maybe losing their spot at the table? I Honestly, 
what I've done and what I would continue to do is I would move over and give them my spot. If, if you're afraid of losing your spot at the table, let me roll back a little bit and you take the spot and I'll listen. I very much advocated for, for us to elevate other people's words. And I think what I'd say is take your spot at the table and don't let these people push you out if you possibly can. And if there's any way that I can help you, I'll do that. But your voice is important too. So how do you find that balance between representing yourself and working to elevate others? That is, you and I talked about this a little bit because that actually has been kind of a problem for me. So it took me a minute to think about this, whether it's time right now for me to say something and to put my voice out in the world. But the truth is, I deserve to be heard too. I know that. And there are very few people, very few subsets of people that I would say, now's not your time to be heard. Just listen for a minute, right? But I will say that to me because I don't want to be the center of everything while there are still other people who really, really need to be heard. That is so generous, but I'm glad that you're a part of this conversation too. Yeah, because my thing is people can make connections and be heard if you set the stage right. And I still have not figured out how to set the stage right to get the right voices heard. I, I, I think that's my my drive. And I'm not the one to even say what the right voices are. But I'm here for helping people whose voices need to be heard get out there, you know? I just want as many people's voices to be heard as possible. It's not... There's, there's no scarcity. Absolutely. Okay. So now that we are all caught up on your life, I want to do a check-in and see how things are going today and how those uh, patriarchal and colonialist influences are impacting you, if they are, and what that process of yeah. decolonizing your mind is looking like. The biggest way that the whole mess is impacting me right now is that I think that it's the financial disparity between the has and the haves not have nots is just ridiculous. And uh, I do live in, I, I live in affordable housing and it still is not affordable. The way it's impacting me now is like um, on a very personal level, my mind is colonized by if you live in, basically if you live in this kind of housing, then you are worth nothing, you know? And this is, to me, I, it's, well, I don't think that about other people at all. But when I think about it, for me, it's like, oh, you're a loser for living in, needing to live in affordable housing. I have this thing from my childhood, like I wanted to grow up and live in a penthouse in New York City and be a writer, right? And, uh, and because I didn't follow the path of, that I originally started on, which was to be a, a technical writer or an engineer, and I, I followed social work instead because that's where my heart led me, I just struggle all the time with, well, if I would have done this differently, if I would have made more money. And I, so I struggle with that. Like what, like my worth, my self-worth. I mean, I feel like I know I'm privileged to, to live indoors. I know I'm privileged to have a place that's accessible because I can't walk, Right. I know I'm privileged to like to have a car and to have people who care about me and to have food on the table and you know so it's it's a bullshit story 
that the patriarchy tells us that we ought to be thankful for the little scraps we get. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that resonates. Yeah. And again, one of the things I was going to say too earlier, and I don't know how this, I think like just my, my, my mere existence as a queer, fat, poly, kinky, weirdo, writer, whatever, artist, person, not who's non-binary, like just my mere existence is resistance, you know, inhabiting my body and being who I am and working very hard at becoming unapologetic about who I am, which people, if you looked at me on the outside, if you, if you met me out in the world, you would think I'm very unapologetic about who I am, but it, it's a practice. That's why I think I'm just so in love with the younger, the younger folks that I meet who are, I'm just so happy that that there's a place for them. And I want to support them in being able to be okay with who they are too, because I'm not going to be around forever, obviously, but I'm so grateful that there are people who are able to, to be who they are at a younger age than I was, you know, I feel so fortunate that, and that I, I've got a long enough span of my life. I'm not old, but I'm older, you know, a little bit older that I can look back and say we have made some progress, which all that means is I see some younger folks who are identifying more and more of the problems and because we can actually start wading through stuff now because we can see, one, that people like us exist, and two, how can we support each other, and three, what like what needs to change. And just the, the existence of this podcast is testament to that, you know? Out of curiosity, what does need to change in your opinion? You had a top bullet points. One, two, three. What do we change? One, the devastation of late stage capitalism. Decentralizing information. Keep doing that and, and figuring out how to network with each other. And I think the other thing is supporting the hell out of artists and people who don't have a voice or who don't have enough of a voice because there's some really cool work coming out in the world. And I, I just, I really think if we just pay attention to the people around us who are trying to create things that show what their world is like to show who they are um, and get a greater understanding of each other, or at least a little bit of compassion for one another. Wow. That is an excellent checklist. We've just got to take care of late stage capitalism, decentralize information, support artists. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> oh, you are so perfect. And I, I love you as an editor so much because you're like, you can. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. Okay. So before we wrap up, I want to get to some more exciting recent news, uh, assuming it's still okay to share. Uh-huh. Yes, it's okay to share. Okay, so I recently learned that Dami is engaged to get married soon. (laughs) (laughs) I am. And what's really funny is for years and years and years, I haven't been like, you know, desk poundingly against marriage, but I'm not a huge supporter of marriage generally. Or I wasn't, I should say. Because for so many years, we couldn't get married, right? And so I'm like, and now because we want to be like our, our cis folks and get married to take on their traditions to and it's like come on Dami just relax because <laughs> so I anyway it took me a little bit to be okay with it um and then when I was okay with it I I, I 
And that, my partner, too, has historically not been okay with it either. So when I asked a couple of times, they were like, I said it, I did it sort of theoretically. It was hilarious. So like, sort of theoretically, like, what would you do if I asked you? And so we had the conversation about the, the philosophy of it more than anything, right? And what I've decided, and I think it's partially because of COVID, is, man, I just, my, my shoulders need to drop a little bit. I need to take a breath and be like, this is what I want. I do want to be married to this person, <laughs> you know? And then, and then on top of that, we're buying a house, which I didn't think I'd ever do with, like, my name on the title and everything. Because I also have some weirdness about, about owning land because we can't really own land. And I, I just been so against all that for so long. Um, but you know, the, the reality is, it, was I against it because I could never attain it because I grew up so damn poor. I can just, did I really choose not to be as capitalistic as I could have been by working in jobs that didn't pay a lot of money, you know? So like, there's all kinds of questions around that, but point is, yes, I'm getting married and getting a house. Buy a house, and thank you for for it. It was not an easy decision, and it wasn't a it wasn't a sure thing. <laughs> but I'm very, very, very happy about it now. I am too. Listeners can't see it, but I have a huge grin on my face as we're talking <laughs> yes, about this. Yay! Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sam, and thank you, Amy, for allowing me to be on this. So happy that you joined us. One last question before we close things out. Sure. Where can people learn more about you and your writing and work? Ah, you can learn more about me at corporealwriting.com. There's a little bit more about me there and about the work the, the work that I do with corporeal writing. Or you can look on my webpage at uh, damishoemaker.com. Yes, so corporeal writing and damishoemaker.com is where you can find me. Perfect. I will make sure there are links to all those in our show notes so people can find you because they should go find you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much, Dami, for joining us, for sharing your story, and for your dedication to dismantling oppressive structures. Your community is lucky to have you as an advocate, as a protector, and a holder of space, and we are so lucky to have you as well. Thank you also to Sam Rose for sharing your story. And as always, I need to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Whether you are a member of the transgender community, close to that community, or first learning about our transgender brothers, sisters, and siblings, we're so grateful to have you with us as we continue to learn from each other and move forward together towards a more accepting and equitable world. Make sure to tune in again next week when we'll be concluding our month of Pride celebrations with an interview featuring Drs. D. Mossbacher and Nanette Gartrell, two incredible women who have been at the forefront of gay activism for decades and have done truly heroic work to make the world a better place. So join us for this inspiring interview next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm-hmm.